This is Iced Coffee, Episode 4. The final preliminary episode before we examine the expeditions that contributed to our scientific understanding of, the disparate international perceptions of, and various national ambitions in Antarctica. As the southern polar continent began its gradual transition from myth and supposition to known quantity and confirmed points on charts, nations were more notions than the legal entities we recognise today. While coasts, rivers and mountains still form many international boundaries, the arbitrary borders, demilitarised zones and straight-edge demarcations evident on a modern globe were largely unimagined with cultures gradually transitioning from one region to another across contiguous flatlands and developing in isolation from one another where geographic boundaries prevented ready travel. At the point we're going to pick up the historical thread, what we now know as China and Japan were effectively closed books to the rest of the world. The Ottoman Empire had long since closed the Silk Road, forcing European merchants, eager to continue making money from the goods available in the East, to seek alternate routes to the Indian Ocean, spurring European mariners to look beyond their coastal trades. Spain and Portugal, first out of the blocks as oceanic voyages in the new economic climate, were still active in maritime trade when the first deliberate forays into the Southern Ocean were made, but were in decline as maritime powers, overshadowed by the vigorous merchantry of the Dutch East India Company, preeminent spice traders, and the Royal Navy, rapidly outpacing all comers in terms of technology, manpower and aggression in engagement. North America, gradually colonised by European interests over the previous two centuries, was in a state of flux as English authority was first questioned and then thrown off, and frontiers were pushed west and north, and territory was traded for with Spanish interests in the south. In South America, Spanish and Portuguese colonies soaked up the silver and produce, sending wealth and new culinary ingredients to the homeland. The native people of both continents got the rough end of the pineapple, but they weren't alone on that front. The Atlantic slave trade was in high gear, with the triangular circuit of people, sugar and manufactured goods exchanged from Africa to the West Indies, the West Indies to Europe and Europe to Africa respectively, taking advantage of the wind patterns of the Atlantic, the fertility of the volcanic soils of the Caribbean, and the power imbalance brought about by guns, germs and steel. More pineapple tops handed out freely to the people at the weak end of the power equation. Australia and New Zealand were becoming known quantities on European charts. Pineapple tops in the offing, though the Maori, being nearer to European cultures in ideas regarding property and right of conquest, got treated better than most indigenous races whose land was colonised by Europeans. Pineapple top and some of the flesh for the Maori, who then passed the rough end around among their iwi until some members of the Ngāti Matanga and Ngāti Tama took it to the Chatham Islands and gave it to the Moriori. With no one downhill of them to kick, they ate it and disappeared into genetic anonymity and anthropological history. Mapping out the development of the Empire of the Seas to the point at which James Cook was sent south to observe the transit of Venus would be a fun podcast series to make in itself, but I'm doing my best to stay on topic, and that topic already holds surplus opportunities for digression, so I'll leave the matter about there.
In Antarctica, first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the women. Exploration was of interest to European states for three main reasons. Trade, territory and souls. But these three facets of ambition all amount to the same thing. Power. The money from trade, the land with which to make more money through mining and farming, and from which to establish bases for the military forces with which to defend the money, and opportunities to spread the various European versions of Christianity, a religion geared to offer advantage to authoritarian leaders by promising jam tomorrow to those people they would take advantage over. With the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation still fresh in European minds, the race was on to convert the rest of the world. The need to convert people of new lands to Catholicism before the filthy Protestants got their corrupt hands on them, or vice versa, was a justification regularly cited in applications for funds to take ships into uncharted seas. The Enlightenment was similarly put to use, with science coming increasingly to the fore as a justification for exploration, and any gold and fertile soil you find while you do the laudable, entirely objective work we're funding for the good of all humanity are all to the good. Cynical? Moi? Yeah, pretty much. But get back to me on that at the end of the series, and see if cynical still carries any pejorative bite as an adjective for me. No one comes out of Antarctic history smelling entirely of roses at a national level, and many of the personal tales of even the peripheral personalities I'll be discussing are ripe with disingenuous rationalisations for ambitions and actions. My stake in the story is an outright greed for information about and experience of Antarctica. I've been obsessed with the idea of an ice-bound continent to our south since I first understood the concept, and set myself on a career path with greater scope to offer opportunities to go there than most other activities. In 2002, I put myself forward as a diver in reserve for a project a friend was running at Scott Base, New Zealand's permanent presence on Ross Island. My offer was accepted, and I joined the team that winter to train in ice diving at Lake Alta. No one got sick that year or the next, despite my best efforts at poisoning. In 2004, I received a phone call. Hey Matt, do you want to come diving in Antarctica? I was recently married, and with the weight of decades of dreaming of exactly that spurring me to accept, I told my friend I would have to check, to see if it was okay with my wife. Fortunately, she realised how much the opportunity meant to me, and agreed to my five-week disappearance, and subsequent efforts as they arose. The history of human activity in Antarctica features charts, flags, cans and postal services, all employed in various iterations of Eddie Izzard's theory of dominion, in which empires were forged through the cunning use of flags. I hereby claim all of India in the name of the Queen of England. You can't claim us, we live here. Well, do you have a flag? No. Well, no flag, no country. That's a rule that I've just made up, and I'm backing it up with this gun. Violence did rear its ugly head on occasion, but overall, getting to the current state of Antarctic equilibrium saw many orders of magnitude less bloodshed than was spilt, and continues to be spilt, in struggles over equivalent landmasses elsewhere. Without an indigenous population, Antarctica represented the first and last true terra nullius, and this obviously played a large role in the largely peaceable exploration. But the continent first came to the attention of the international community when international image was beginning to hold some sway in determining how a nation acted. 
the perception of a nation's integrity and ethical merit began to influence policies. And while early skirmishes between sealers were common, and Argentine soldiers fired over the heads of a British landing party at Hope Bay on the Antarctic Peninsula in 1952, the sustained science-washing of Antarctic endeavours did give the continent effective sanctity during the biggest test of international resolve regarding its future seen to date, when the Falklands War failed to spill out into a dispute over the Falkland Islands' dependency, despite the nations at war holding overlapping claims to that territory. My role as a diver in a research team did its incremental part in giving New Zealand's association with the Ross dependency credence, and an image of my head, emerging from the dive hole, was used on a stamp, carrying forward another traditional mechanism by which nations have attempted to assert a strong connection to the territory. If you want to see what I look like, my physog can be found on the $2 stamp of the 2006 Ross Dependency Postal Issue, though I was wearing an ice diving hood, so you mightn't recognise me in the street from that image alone. While working at Geoscience Australia, I took every opportunity to remind my geologist workmates that while the marine biologist stamp was the top of the pile, their stamp was worth only $1.35. Take that, geology. So, I'm a government shill, working for Big Antarctica. At least I knocked back the invitation I got from the Freemasons to join the Illuminati community inside the Hollow Earth, and ditched my ticket to fly through the polar aperture on the Nazi flying saucers. Some folks engaged in Antarctic science get shirty about tourists heading to the ice, but I don't see how they can justify such shirtiness. If it's a matter of balance, the environmental harm done by scientific programs to date far outweighs that done by tourists, and scientists can't criticise tourists on that front without being hypocrites. If it's a matter of warranted versus unwarranted environmental damage, they need to keep in mind that much of the science done there is busy work. Interesting science being done well, but hardly attempts to answer the most pressing questions humanity faces, so it might be quite hard to make a case that the science which isn't a boon to humanity and which doesn't contribute much to conservation of Antarctica itself outweighs the conservation value of giving people experiences which motivate them to advocate conservation causes, such as the tour organisers cite as the value of their endeavours. Nick Johnson author of the website and book, Big Dead Place, described Antarctic science programs as analogous to a person standing in a parking space, waving their arms and telling people their friend will be along any minute. Placeholders to keep others out of a particular space. And I think there's something in that. The effort required to maintain a base, let alone carry out research in Antarctica, outweigh the tangible benefits a nation gains from the expense. Antarctic science alerted the world to the dangerous diminishment of the ozone layer, inspiring a worldwide response to change industrial and personal habits, but serendipitous outcomes can't be used to justify a research program retrospectively. I'm glad we got the outcome, but couldn't have said a potential black swan outcome like that warranted the effort that went into achieving it if asked to sign the checks that got the ball rolling in the first place. National territorial interests are key to understanding much of what happened and is happening in the Antarctic, with national prestige as a secondary driver, and science tertiary. But science is the only one people can be proud of in an era where ethics are increasingly assessed by the taxpaying public and international community, so it gets first mention in press releases and funding applications. Suits me. I get to spend time doing the work I love in regions I couldn't afford to head to on my own dollar. 